Father, we just ask you to bless these words. We thank you, God, for the power of your word, that it changes lives. We thank you, God, that the Bible today is relevant and is pertinent to every aspect of our life. God, we just do pray for Magnolia. We pray for the surrounding area, God, as people meet in their respective churches, God, that there be a revival, that the Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just move across this area, that there would be a desire to seek God and to know God. Bless this time together as we look at Luke 15. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 15. I just want to briefly review. Uh, this is going to be the second and probably the last in a short series of messages about God's heart for people. And it's just been something I've been thinking about that um, I think one of the great mysteries today is really not understanding what God's heart is for you. What is God's heart for a person? What does God think about me? What does God, what does God desire for me to know? What does God want to communicate to me? I think that there's so much that God wants to communicate. And we read this, and I think that so many times in God's communication to us or to people, um, we can make it so complex where Jesus here is using simple parables. And we got the kids with us this morning, and so I want to really keep it on their level as well. God's heart for people in Luke chapter 15. And let's look look at uh, that chapter together, starting in verse 11. But I'm going to review, first of all, what we shared last week, and that is we talked about the lost sheep. And um, when we look at the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 10, we're really seeing, and then also the rest of this chapter, we're really seeing three major things. God's heart for people, what God wants to communicate to people, what God's desire is for them to know. And number two, why do people get lost? Why do we get lost? Have you ever been lost in your life? Maybe for an hour? I mean, not physically lost, but just lost your compass, your soul compass. The compass of your soul is just kind of like you're in a Bermuda Triangle and it's going round and round and round and you don't even know where you are. And I think that there's moments where like morally we can get lost. We can get lost in our marriage. We can get lost in our parenthood. We can get lost in our career. And there's these moments that we get lost. And why do people get lost? And how does that happen? How does it happen in the church? How do people get lost in the church? And then number three, what is the true joy and energy in the church? Now, I was preparing this. And guys, you know, I said this last night in our class. You know, when, when I prepare the scriptures, uh, I'm just not, I'm not opening my Bible 45 minutes before the service begins. I'm really asking God, like, what do you want to communicate to people? What is your heart? Lord, how can I as a vessel in my personal disciplines and in my thought life and in my walk with you, how can I be the best prepared to, to, to communicate your heart for Evergrace Church and for the people that are in this church? And so that just leads me to, and I'm the kind of person that, I don't know, when I study and I read, I really want to know the topic. And I feel like that if I get up and I just kind of wing it, I just feel like that that is, um, that that is just so below what people deserve. And I, and I really want God, I, would, I really want to be a vessel as a pastor that's prepared in the Word of God that can be worthy to communicate to you. Because I know um, you're not my people and you don't belong to Evergrace. You're God's people and you're His sheep. And God sent his son. And if, if there was only one person in this room in all of world history that would ever make a decision for Christ, God would still send his son for you. And that is your value, and that is who you are, and you're purchased by the blood of Christ. 
And so my desire is to really be faithful in the word of God. And so that requires me sometimes to really like to spend just so much time in the word. And another thing as a pastor, I just want you guys to know, is I don't study the Bible just to prepare a message. Okay, I'm not just studying the Bible so I can have something to say on Sunday. All right. Does that, does that make sense? I really want to know God. I want to open my Bible. I want to know God. I need to hear from God about my family, about what he's doing in my life, and also as a pastor in my neighborhood. And I think that, yes, we have a vision for across the world. We have a vision for our neighborhoods. But I think the neighborhood that we live in, like I would like us to be praying for our neighbors and maybe just step out and talk to them and say, hey, what can I do for you? What's happening in your life? What are you thinking about? And you'd be shocked what's going on in your neighborhood. You'd be, you'd be really shocked. And I think that one thing that I'd like us this fall to really understand, I just want to, by the grace of God, share a few messages about what is the church, who are we, and what are we doing in our neighborhoods. And I'm not here to say, hey, you're not doing enough. That's not, that's not the message of the church. The message is, is, what is God's heart for you? And I think that the devil would love to, sh- would really like to hide from you and I the nature and the characteristic of God. And so what is the true joy and the energy of the church? What is that? Well, I want to talk about that. What, what is what, when we look at the book of Acts, what got the church in the book of Acts excited? So just by way of review, we said last week that Jesus attracted two kinds of people. In, in, in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, he began to speak and two types of people would come to listen to him, the sinners and the religious people. And we said last week, it seems like that in the church today, that most of the people that are in the church today are the second group, the religious group, the Pharisees. And wonder, when, when we think about that, the question is, is where are the people that are in the homes, that are, that are in the streets, that are in, that are in life, that are in the bars, that are, in, that are in wealthy places but are very broken places? Where are they? And the question and that is, is that, and that, and that is what we want to talk about today is why God wants to seek after what is God's heart for people. So the first thing here is like, um, as Jesus is gathering people in, in, in 15, chapter 15, verse 1, uh, the Pharisees see all of these, just these ragtag people, like these people that just are not, they don't consider, consider them very valuable. And so the, the Pharisees begin to grumble. Do you ever hear that? Like, you ever been in a place in your life where somebody may be grumbling about you? Like, what are you doing here? Or maybe we're doing that. What is that person doing in this room? And here Jesus sees that, and he, he goes ahead and he addresses that with three parables. First one is the lost sheep, which we talked about last week. And there's these three things, and, and there are three reasons why people get lost. The sheep get lost, sheep get lost because of ignorance. Just the shepherd overlooked something. He's not looking, or he... He loses track of something, and there's ignorance. And they don't know that a sheep is gone until they begin to count. And the sheep is lost because of ignorance. How many people do we know today that are lost because of ignorance? Like, does anybody know what's going on in my life? Does anybody know what's happening? Does anybody know that I had a family member that just passed away? And I think, we said this last night, I think one of the greatest gifts, I think the greatest gift that God can give, and I'm not here to, okay, if you come to Evergrace, you're going to know that I don't talk like this, but I'm going to just say it one time. The greatest gift, I can say it this way, the greatest gift in my life is that I have a pastor. I have somebody I can call. And I have, I have a pastor in my life that, that, can, that doesn't judge me, that walks with me, that has discipled me over the years. And I can't imagine 
some of the things that people go through without having a pastor in their life. Someone that they know, this guy's got my back. He's praying for me. And whatever I go through, he's going to be there to pray with me. And you know, sometimes people can go to a church or go to an assembly or be in a group of people uh, that are maybe a religious group and, and have the confession that David said that when I was in the midst of the people of God, when I was in the midst of the assembly, my foot was slipping. How, how often that happens today in churches where a pastor or a, a, a Christian leader or a mom or someone is in the midst of, maybe in the midst of, everybody knows them, and they're in secret in their, in secret in their life, their foot's slipping. And there's this massive discouragement coming in and massive, massive onslaught coming in. And people can get lost because of ignorance. The second thing that's lost is, is the coin is lost. And I want to talk about that briefly this morning. The coin is lost because uh, their value, person's value, a person like a coin can be lost because the value of their soul is, is neglected. It's just that we, people don't understand the value of a person. I was, thinking my, I was thinking to myself the other day, why I would not have, and some, I don't have, like, I don't personally have a burden for people, other people naturally. I'm not a, a people person. Naturally, uh, I would probably be more of an introverted person that would be, just be happy to stay in my room and read. <laughs> be, just do my own thing and not really be a people person. But when the gospel comes into your life, it totally changes everything. And it makes, it just puts something inside of you that's just like, I want to step out in faith. There's something inside of us that, and that's the spirit of Christ. When we get to know God, when we get to know his thoughts towards us, that there are as many as the sands of the sea, and that his blood washes us continually, day and night and day and night and night and day, the blood of Christ is washing us continually, and we are pure and we are clean and we are holy. And five minutes ago, if something came into your head, it's washed in 1 John 1, 9 by the renewing. We're washed by the renewing and then by the word of God. But when that is happening in our life, we begin to discover our value. I think a young girl, a young teenager, young, a young girl or a young man could be, could be so easily drawn into uh, uh, selling out something about the value of their body because they don't understand their value. Like as, as an adult, we can sell ourselves out to something because we don't understand the value of our soul. We, we live amongst people that really don't understand our value. And so as a person, like if I could understand my neighbor's value, <clears throat> I don't have a natural love for people. I'll just say that, you know, and I'm a pastor. And, I, I, and I'm not to say that I'm not a, you know, that God has done a great work in my heart and continues to do that. But like the gospel doesn't call charismatic people. I don't mean charismatic by the denomination. I'm just saying people, God doesn't call people naturally that are, that are charismatic in their personality. He's not calling them. He's calling you and I into a walk of faith. And he puts something inside of us. And when we begin to think about God's heart, that we're going to talk about here, we begin, to discover, we begin to discover something in our heart that wasn't there before. And that's a burden for somebody, a care, a concern. Like what? What? Like what? You know, I was talking to a neighbor across the street. You just never know. I mean, beautiful house. I mean, really nice, super nice. Two really nice luxury vehicles in the, in the garage. And... And uh, their marriage is on the brink. It was falling apart. It's over. It's done. Lady down the street, um, very wealthy from overseas, um, comes from a very big name family in the Ukraine, and she's an alcoholic. You know, broken. She's totally broken. I mean, beautiful house. Lady down the corner, like around the corner, like just you know. She's you know, no husband, has a daughter. I don't say this in a judging way. People are hurting and. 
and and she you know um, she my she my wife have met and they, we've talked with her and she is a she practices witchcraft and it's like this is in, this is in a Texan neighborhood this is amazing and why why is this because I think that when we discover a person's value we discover something about a person that that person doesn't even believe about themselves and that's what the church is you come into a place like a community like this and we're going to be mirroring. The church is supposed to be a mirror to people about who they are in Christ and their finished work. And we said this last night. Remember, Jesus goes to Nathaniel. One of my favorite stories. I love this. Jesus goes to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's not even a believer. I think it's John chapter 1. And he's not even, we don't know if he's necessarily someone that's confessed Christ as his personal Savior. And he doesn't even know who Christ is. And Jesus comes to Nathaniel. And the first thing he says to Nathaniel is, Wow, what a, what a blessed man of, in Israel, a man in whom there's no guile. There's guile in Nathaniel for sure, because he's a sinner. And, 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 and Nathaniel's like, what, who are you to talk to me like this? And this is, what, this is what God does in our life, is that when we can discover our own value, we begin to reflect that to other people. We begin to, we begin to say things to people that people have never said to us. I remember a guy who discipled me at a very young, you know, as a teenager, said to me, he said, I'm so excited about your future and what God has for you. And I thought, nobody's ever talked to me like that. I've never, not even one time has anyone ever said anything, just the opposite I've heard about that, you know? Uh, my guidance counselors in the high school met with my parents, and I found out about this later, and they just said, you know, our, our outlook, I mean, it's pretty dismal. Just, you know, it's like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't, you know? And I heard all of that, right? I'm like, oh, man. You know, but then here's a guy who says to me, and he says, I'm so excited about God's future in your life. And that just changes everything, and we begin to discover our value. Why do coins get lost? Why do people get lost? Because of the neck, we, we, they, we, we, don't, we don't understand somebody's value. There's something unique about a coin. I'm just trying to picture what's happening there in Luke 15. Here's the woman. She's probably got a bunch of coins in her hand. She's going across her little house. One falls out. She doesn't know it. And it falls on the floor, and it kind of, as it's falling, can you imagine, like, a coin can't cry out for help. A coin can't say, help, you dropped me. A coin can't make a noise or cannot do something to gain the attention of the woman who's momentarily neglected its value and lost it. And as the coin falls and hits the floor and rolls under a piece of furniture, it's there alone and waiting to be found. It's a very valuable coin. It's something that is is so valuable that it's going to be, it's so needed for this woman. And I think that there are people today that are behind closed doors that have been dropped and don't know how to cry out for help, and they're behind a closed door, and they're just waiting to be met. <laughs> I mean, they could be living next door to you, or they could, be, they could be in Iraq, or they could be in India, they could be in China. There's people, there are lost coins. And you know, how do these lost, how do these lost coins be found? You know, you think about it, how did the woman find a lost coin. First of all, she recognized it was gone, and she understood its value. And I think a lot of times, sadly, people's value, we don't understand somebody's value until they're gone. And what does she do? She grabs a broom, and she begins to sweep. Now, the sweeping action, I used to be a janitor. I worked all night in Bible college. I cleaned everything from A to Z. And, and, and especially after conferences, Christian conferences were always fun to clean up afterwards. Just because like everybody's having so much fun in the Word and fellowship. There's just messes everywhere. I just remember cleaning up everybody's mess after a Christian conference, and I thought, man, this is great. You know, this is awesome. And I'm like sweeping, you know, when, when, the, woman's sweep, when, when the woman's sweeping the floor, 
how do you sweep a floor? Well, it's pretty systematic, isn't it? You're kind of, you're making sure the broom is contacting every part of the floor. And you're just kind of like going back, you're just kind of making sure that you're not missing anything. And this is how God is um, communicating to us how a lost coin is found. It's pretty systematic. A systematic approach to finding people. And somebody may say, well, that just sounds just too mechanical or just sound. Well, I think if we understand God's heart and the value of the coin, we're going to be very, very mechanical about what we do. And so just sweeping, you know, my wife lost an earring. Um, she fell asleep the other night and didn't take out her earrings. And one of them fell out. And it was a diamond earring. It was really nice. And, and it just seems like the most expensive jewelry is the one that gets, gets lost, doesn't it? I don't know. And she was, she was looking for it for days. I was under the bed. And I was kind of, you know, my flashlight. I couldn't find it. And we have one of these Roomba, Roomba vacuum cleaners, these, uh-huh. these robot things. And I said, you know what, like, if I'm not going to find it, that's going to find it because that's pretty systematic, you know. It's a little freaky because, you know, there's like a camera on the front of it and it's just taking pictures. Like, it's taking pictures of every. So, like, you know, <clears throat> I want to make sure that I'm in a presentable format when that vacuum cleaner comes into my my, my bedroom or something. And it's like, you know, I, this is the way I think. I'm sorry. And so this vacuum's going back and forth, and my wife's cleaning out the trash. And there it is, right inside the trash can. Wow. I think having a systematic approach to finding the lost coin. Why? Because people are valuable. As a pastor or as a person that's in ministry or just a Bible study leader or a priest in your neighborhood. You know, like you. Um, we talked about the priesthood last night. You know, you're a priest in your neighborhood. You are bringing people to God in prayer and you're bringing God to people in evangelism. And I just think that having a heart for people, when we discover their value, we're going to be so methodical about what we do. And we're going to ask the Lord, Lord, help me. Help me to not neglect somebody's value. And I think that um, if if we live in our citadels and we don't step out ever to do anything because we think we got it good, then then we're missing people's value. And then lastly, the third parable, I want to look at this for a couple minutes, is the dad with two sons. Now, I know that people call this the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, but I think it's way more than that. It's a, it's a parable about a dad, a father, who has two sons, and about the two sons and what they need from their dad. And so let's look at the, um, we read, um, we talked about verses 8 through 10 already, um, the lost coin. And I just want to make a mention before we go to the sons here, in verse 10 of chapter 15. And in the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Every time we see in these three parables, it ends the same way. Joy in the presence of God. Joy in the presence of God. Joy in the, and the woman finds the coin and brings all of her friends over to her house. And there's joy in the community. What is the thing that makes church great? What's the thing that brings energy into the church? What is great? about community, what's amazing about Bible studies and Bible school, what brings joy, energy to that, that is when people are found. That's what brings the most joy to me, like when somebody gets found. You know, I just remember when Ethan and Lauren got, you know, what an amazing story about them. They, they, made a, they, they found Christ, you know, through their neighbors, through Billy and, and Candace, and they found Christ, and, and they, made a, you know, they made a decision for Christ. What a beautiful, and then they got married, and then they got baptized. You know, it's like, that's amazing. That's a lot of joy. That's just, I mean, for me, that's, that's really, that's what God is really rejoicing about. And then in verse 11, we see the story of the two sons. And a certain man had two sons in verse 11. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate 
that falls to me, and he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the goods, with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am, di- I am dying here with hungry, hunger. Verse 18, I will get up and I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father, and while he was away, still a, a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against your... Against against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his slaves quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf kill it and then let us eat and be merry and for for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again he was lost and he's been found and they began to be merry okay joy rejoicing the compassion of the father here and you know something, when the youngest son said, give me mine, um, this it marks the, something that is very much a part of the American lifestyle, the pursuit of happiness. Actually, that's in our Constitution, isn't it? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And somebody brought it up the other day, the Constitution gives us rights that the, the Bible may not even guarantee. You know what I'm saying? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God doesn't really necessarily guarantee that as a Christian. And actually, we may be called upon, and we will be called upon to suffer at times for Christ's sake. But here, the, the, the son says, give me mine. And, and, and this is a misplaced love. The, the son doesn't understand the father's love to him. And the son doesn't understand love. And he's misplacing his love. And as he says this, this is the worst day of this dad's life. I'm a, I'm a kind of rel- still relatively new dad. And the son says to him, give me mine. And this is, in, in, in the Middle Eastern culture, this is a supreme insult. Why? Because dads only, uh, sons only get the inheritance when the dad dies. And he's basically saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't around. I just, I want what you have and what your, all of your belongings, all of your possessions and your life, your life and your wealth is more, more valuable to me than you are, Dad, to me. Imagine the pain that must have been. Imagine the suffering in dad's in his dad's heart. And yet this dad loves him. And this dad is a picture of the father. And we'll take a look at that in a second. And this is an insult to the dad. And yet the, the dad, instead of striking him, striking his son and running him out of the house as it would be understood and, and expected in Middle Eastern culture, he divides up the land and he gives it to him. And this the dad does in an anticipation for reconciliation in anticipation for redemption. I'm doing this because down the road, I want to see, I want my son to be reconciled to me. And he understands through prayer and compassion that this is possible. And then we, and then we know the story. He comes home and he's reconciled to his dad. 
And there's this joy, and there's this great joy, and there's this great merrymaking. And then in verse 24, we see the second son. We see the second son in verse 25, verse 32 through 32. And let's look at that together. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. I was thinking, like, how do you hear dancing? What does dancing sound like? It must have been loud dancing. You know? <laughs> I mean, a lot of loud dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. Interesting that he would summon the servant and not his dad. Just unique, just something for the, you know, some thought, thought work there. Why would he summon a servant and not go straight to his dad? What's going on there with that relationship? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf in verse 27 because he has received him back safe and sound. And verse 28, but he became angry and was not willing to go in. His father came out and began entreating him. And he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. Does that sound like some like Christianity? Like, Does that sound like this can happen in Christianity? For so many years I've laid my life down for this church. Forty years I've done this and this is the way I'm treated. <laughs> and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid that I may, might, might make merry with my friends. And one commentator says this, is that when, when the father divided his wealth, he also gave portion to his elder son. And he's talking now about a kid. And in verse 30, and when his son and, and when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. See the justice, the way of thinking that this elder son has. And I think as a Christian, what God is always confronting in our life and is always challenging is your and my human sense of justice. I have been wronged. I have been wronged. And I think that that is so much a part of our culture that we live in, our rights. We have rights. And these rights can't be trampled down. And I I agree with that. And I'm all for that. But there's a moment where our rights and God's eternal purpose, there, there comes a moment where there could be a confrontation. And here the elder son's sense of rights and justice is... Confronted, And I want to give us a warning this morning. When you feel like your rights have been trampled on by someone or something in God's plan, and it happens to me, get really small. Humble yourself before the Lord. Just get really small and say, God, who the heck am I anyway? Not that we would ditch and diss our personal value, but that we would understand, I'm so valuable. I'm so precious to him that I don't really care if my rights are trampled down because I know who I am in Christ. We were talking about this last night, that when we understand that we're not on the outside looking in, that we're on the inner circle with Christ and we're in the Trinity in our position, it doesn't matter what people say to us. It doesn't matter if we are not affirmed. I think men, we deal with this. We're looking for affirmation. And when we don't get that affirmation, we just turn into something else. You know, I, I remember a time in my life in my 30s when I kind of went through this time where affirmation for me was very important and I wasn't getting it from what I thought I needed from people and, and from my pastor and from people around me. And they were giving me Christ, but they were not giving me this fleshly affirmation that I think my flesh needed. And I felt like, I just felt like, man, like, you know, that's not right. And I remember going to God and I remember God just saying to me, you know, I was at a, I was a Bible study at somebody's house and I was sitting in the back of the Bible study I was just in this whirlwind of just like, you know, whenever we get lost in our thoughts, and just we're not, we don't even know what's going on in the Bible study. 
And I just got up, put my shoes on, and just went out the door and went home. And as I'm driving home, I'm just thinking, the Lord said to me, as he said to, to, to Abraham, he said, walk before me and be thou perfect. He said, just walk before me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if you're recognized. It doesn't matter if everybody gets your name wrong. It doesn't matter if, like, your grandkids or whatever. It's just, it doesn't matter if you're not getting the affirmation and the, and the value. And this is, I think, one of the things that, that our elder generation is that we overlook. As in the United States, and I'm not sorry to diss on our country. I'm, not, I'm a patriot. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think we live in a culture that we, have, that we just put away our elderly because they don't have anything to give to our society. They don't have energy, quote, unquote. They don't have, but they have so much to give to us through their wisdom, through their experience, and through their walk with God. And, and I think that whenever our sense of justice is offended, we just need to get real quiet before the Lord and say, Lord, okay, yeah, maybe something happened. Maybe I was wrong. But, and so here's the elder son, and he says, what did you do here? I've always been with you. And in verse 30, 31, and he said, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. And But we had to. But we had to be merry. We had to rejoice. We had to. We had to. We were just, we had to do this. For the brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I want to close with, close with this. And that kind of, and, and the parable ends on a cliffhanger there. We don't know this, this, uh, you know, like it's like a movie. Don't you hate those movies that end and there's no resolution there? Like, does the hero live or does he die? <laughs> you know, he's like dying in the field. We don't know if the hero dies or if he lives. It's kind of like with this here is that the elder brother, we don't know, does he go into the house or does he stay out? What happens to the relationship? Kind of on a cliffhanger. And I, I want to just make this comment here back in verse 11. Look at the picture of the father. And we're talking about God's heart for people. And I want to close with this. God's heart, the Father, has sacrificed all that he had, his, his living, his wealth, that there would be redemption for his sons. And you know, this is really beautiful. I never saw it in the Greek until, until like yesterday. And this is what's beautiful about the Bible. Like you could study the same verse a hundred times, and every time you read it, there's going to be something fresh and new about it. It says this in the Greek, and he divided unto, unto them, his two sons, his living. And the Greek there means... It means two things. It means to divide means to tear apart. It just means to rip apart. It means to like dislocate, to, to create a situation that's so awkward and so uncomfortable. And, and everything in your life is uprooted and it's torn apart and it's, it's divided. And, and, and literally the father internally and externally is experiencing this division and this tearing apart of his soul and all of his wealth. And the Greek word there for his living is actually the Greek word bios which means his physical life, his very being, his own life. The father's own bias, his own life, his own biological life is being torn apart for his two sons. And I want to say this is that the father does this because of his love for his kids. He loves loves his sons. This is what God did for us. He, He divided his spoils, and that was Jesus Christ. He was torn apart literally physically on a cross he was ripped apart like meat on the cross and we've all read those all those those stories about what actually happened on the cross physically to jesus he was torn and ripped apart and every ounce of blood he had was poured out not just a few sprinkles like we see in hollywood it was absolutely just everything was poured out of him and he was given and he actually not only gave up his 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 inheritance which is his son 
but he, gave, he, he, is, he allowed himself to be torn apart for us. The father didn't just suffer the loss of his son or the loss of his livelihood, but he lost everything, even his physical life. And so when the son comes, when the son comes back, his son's repentance to the father, the father has this compassion. And I want to close with this. What is really a true joy in every, in every part of this parable? True joy is, is that that which was dead is now alive. And I think the biggest mystery for us is for us to discover our personal value. And we live in a world system that does not value people, that does not value people's time, their effort, and their energy, or their health. And I think that my prayer is, is that first we would discover our value, who we are in Christ, and how beautifully valuable we are. If a girl could understand that, she would not... She would not give herself away so easily. If a guy could understand that, if a young man could understand that, a teenager or a young boy could understand that, he would understand how to be a gentleman and how to talk to people, how to talk to his elders, his authority. If we could understand our personal value, then we're not going to be living chasing the value, chasing the dream, because we already have it. We already have it. We're baptized in it. We're baptized in the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we're valuable. And we can go out that door and you know what? When you walk out the door, maybe this church can't resolve all your issues. Maybe, maybe we can't give you money or maybe we can't resolve, maybe even counsel you guys properly. Maybe we can do that. We can try, but we can walk out the door and know that I'm precious, that I, I, I'm, very, I'm very precious. And when, when, when I'm cut off on the road or when, you know, 1488, when, <laughs> you know, like when something happens and I'm, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but like I like to drive fast. Uh, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I know. When that happens, you know, when that happens, just understand you're valuable, right? And the, and the blue lights, no, I haven't been pulled over yet, praise the Lord. I don't plan to be. I'm, dri- I'm driving carefully. But when that happens to you, you feel guilty, you feel really bad about yourself, understand your value, and that you're loved no matter what. Amen? Amen. Let's close on that note right there. Father, we just.